I've, I've been fortunate to have a life rich with experience. They're, they're an entrepreneur experience. It's very, very high highs and very, very low lows, but it's, 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 you can feel it. It's you're, I, I love, I love all that I've been exposed to, who I've met along the journey, what we've accomplished. And now to kind of be at the precipice of really modernizing how families apply and admit and get enrolled into colleges is to change an industry that hasn't innovated in a hundred years in that regard is, is really, really exciting. You just can't do that quickly. It just takes time. That's Newt Skirman. He retraces his career journey on this episode of Leadership Backstory, focused on solving the college admission puzzle as early as his teenage years. Luke embraced entrepreneurship as a student at Carnegie Mellon University, leading him to found Niche soon after college. Today, it's a leading school and college resource for students and parents. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. I'm Peter Barron, Brendan Schneider, and I learned a lot, and we know you will too, so let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Barron. And I'm Brendan Schneider. And welcome to the Leadership Backstory. So, Brendan, we've been on this like roll of guests that in some form or fashion, you have been a customer yeah. of in a past life. And I, I like the, 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 the trip continues today. Yeah. Uh, we have Luke Skirman, who is the CEO of Niche on the call. Luke, it's a pleasure to meet you. Great, great to be here. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And this is going to be really fun because, you know, Brendan, you know my backstory, right? Like I created a portal for independent schools years and years ago. And mm -hmm. Niche has taken that and like, by leaps and bounds, done amazing things in the K-12 and the higher ed space. So I'm super fascinated by, you know, how he built this and, and also knowing that this has been kind of a life's passion for him. So yeah. Luke, yeah, I, I'm really interested in that. I mean, we had talked once before and you had kind of keyed in on your experience coming into college, but take us back to like where you thought your backstory began. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, not to go too long, but, um, so I was born in New York city. Um, dad didn't want to, uh, live in the suburbs. Mom didn't want to raise me in Manhattan. We ended up moving to Northern California when I was very young. I went wow. to a public high school, uh, in Northern California, and I really didn't want to go to college, um, in California. I wanted to kind of spread my wings a little bit. I was really interested to go to colleges more on the East coast, get closer to cousins, uncles, grandparents. Um, and I just devoured every piece of content, all guidebooks, anything I could get my hands on about choosing, researching, selecting a college. It was just this absolute fascination. I just loved it. It was just <laughs> totally phenomenal to me. What was that? What, what, why do you think? Like, what was the, what fascinated you about it, it in particular? It just felt like a big puzzle. It felt hard. I mean, you oh, were yeah. um, requesting information from colleges. Sometimes you'd get mail from colleges. Um, you wanted to, go, I wanted to go to a good school. Um, it just felt like a moment that, um, if you could get right, could really propel you forward in so many different ways. And, um, sure. you know, I, I felt like I was ambitious. I was excited. I was, a, I was a good student. I, I felt like it was, it was a chance to really, um, you know, I think there was always a saying that, um, the hardest part of getting into college was getting into college a little bit. And it's like, I just wanted to get into one and then I knew I could kind of keep up a little bit, but, but it was hard to kind of, um, I just wanted to, to aim at the right ones. And so, uh, my research at the time, this is before I'd visited any colleges or whatnot. 
the perfect school for me, I felt was going to be Wake Forest University. Um, <laughs> warm weather, ACC basketball, free laptop, free printer, good business <laughs> school, good overall school. Um, and then I went to visit it. And I'm, I'm not trying to say anything disparaging about Wake Forest, but um, it was the Deep South. It was a small town. It was pretty homogenous. Um, most of the okay. males joined a fraternity. It it just didn't it didn't feel like me at all. So I'd done all this research, and yet I was like, no way, I, this does not feel like me at all. I ended up applying to Carnegie Mellon, NYU, Penn, and Georgetown. Did not get into Penn and Georgetown, and I got into NYU and Carnegie Mellon, both in their undergraduate schools of business. And I love New York City, but it just didn't feel like college to me. It just felt like Manhattan and buildings all over the city. It felt a little overwhelming. It felt the dollars that my parents were going to help me with were going to go much further in Pittsburgh. I just felt more comfortable, and I felt confident about my Carnegie Mellon choice. And then I got to CMU. And I started asking everyone, hey, how did you choose Carnegie Mellon? And I just felt like people were kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, I heard it was good. A counselor told me, a friend told me. Um, and I kept saying to myself, wow, this is just this incredibly important decision. You know, I was moving 3,000 miles across the country, spent four years of your life. You develop friends, you develop a network, leads to jobs, hundreds of thousands of dollar decision. This was like big decision. And I felt like everyone was kind of rolling the dice. It usually worked out okay, but it, it felt like the whole process, I felt could you could instill a, a bit more confidence in it. And when I really zoomed out, there was two central things that I felt were missing from the process. Number one is that I didn't really feel that the students had a sufficient voice in the process. This was kind of pre-user-generated content, just as kind of Yelp and TripAdvisor mm -hmm. were coming along. And the second was that I felt that the content was focused too exclusively on the academics. And I was really curious about the dorms and the food and the athletics and the Greek life and the parking and the nightlife mm -hmm. and, and all these other factors. After visiting several colleges, I was very confident that you could get a great education at many institutions. But the harder thing to ascertain was where were you going to fit in and thrive? And really it wasn't about who could educate you the best. They all could probably educate you pretty darn well, but where where were mm. you going to be your best self for the next four years? And that was harder to figure out. And that's what I really wanted to go and tackle. And um, so my sophomore year in college, this was the height of the first dot-com boom. This is the 2000. It was just, it was a frenzy. All these companies were starting. And I, yeah. I kind of wrote down a bunch of dot-com ideas and, and the one that kind of, I was the most excited about my friends kind of patted me on the back the most was modernizing how students choose and select a college. Um, then I took an entrepreneurship class in the fall semester of my junior year. And my professor, maybe I listened to intently, he said, all these internet companies are failing because they can't get big enough fast enough and they're relying exclusively on advertising revenue and they don't have enough traffic. So at the time, the company was called College Prowler. We we rebranded to Niche in 2013. We might get to that story later. But um, I said, we are going to start the company and we're going to self-publish physical books, almost like a Cliff's Notes guide, one on Harvard, one on Yale, one on Stanford, one on Carnegie Mellon, one on UCLA, a little book that went in depth on all aspects of campus life. That was essentially the business plan. 
Um, but why don't I kind of pause there for a minute? Yeah, I'm. So first off, like it's so funny. I remember feeling a lot of the same thoughts you felt looking for colleges. Like I just felt incomplete, and you know we're a little bit older, Brendan and I. So even the tool, the tools were a little less sophisticated even then. And like, what was that, Brendan? Like the early '90s, right? Yeah. In that period yeah. when we were looking yeah, at colleges. And I just personally, Luke, like I ended up at a college. It wasn't the right fit. I transferred and found found my home. And yeah. um, I wish we had I, had I had had better tools to avoid that that path. But to, to kind of conceptually have this idea at such a young age, like where did that come from? Is that were your parents really encouraging of that? I mean, because you know the, to, to get to college prowler as young as you yeah. did, like that had to have been obviously it's, it was cooking for a while. So yeah. my family is very entrepreneurial. My mother's an entrepreneur. My father's an entrepreneur. Both my grandparents, uh, my grandfathers are entrepreneurs. We, we are very entrepreneurial. Yeah. I went into college, I would say, thinking I would go into investment banking. That was thought I so really was just determined to make as much money as humanly possible. And then I I started taking these finance classes and I just hated them. They were just so boring and so academic and so theoretical. I was just craving yeah. more practical use. And I finally found an entrepreneurship class. And it was a little bit of finance, a little bit of accounting, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of management. It was a little bit of everything, but I didn't feel like I had to go so deep in one specific thing. It felt a little more creative. They always say that the entrepreneur is kind of the artist of the business world. I felt like I'd really found what I was supposed to study in college. Um, and up until that point, I would say my first two years of college, I was not a top student and I don't really feel like I'd, I'd really gotten my groove. That, that, that entrepreneurship class, my fall semester of my junior year with the dot-com kind of boom, that's when it really felt like it, 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 it clicked. The other, I guess, big moment that happened. So I, I, um, no, I, I had a, my first formal internship between my junior year and my senior year at this company called Commerce One. I was living at my parents' house in that summer in the Bay Area. They lived in San Francisco and the internship was over the Bay Bridge in Pleasanton. And I was driving 50 miles each way. So I was in a car by myself, 100 miles a day, about two and a half hours a day. And I'd sit in a cubicle about nine hours a day for about a two or 3,000 person company. And I just came back after that summer and I said, is this really why I, I went to college? Is this really what I went to Carnegie Mellon for is to just be yeah. a road warrior, to, to be in traffic for two and a half hours and to be one of 3,000 employees? It, it just, and that's, I came back and felt like I wanted to kind of take matters into my own hands a little bit more, work a little bit more small business. I didn't think I was going to literally start something myself, but I felt like I wanted to work at a smaller company and have a bit more impact. Where, uh, so Luke, for me, the first part of the story, all I heard was that I heard you say Pittsburgh was better than New York. That's all I heard, so, but that's, that's what I take from it since we're yeah. both based there. But, um, uh, I don't want to go too far off track, but did, college prowler was the initial idea. What were some of the other ideas? Was there anything ever that still may be in your head that you're like, Oh, maybe someday I'll go there. Um, there, there's nothing great. I mean, there was one about okay. base, baseball cards and this and that. Not, nothing was too cool. I mean, now it's it's okay. such a big hit how valuable some of these cards are. But I would say college prowler niche is still probably my my best idea that I've come up good. with and still still pulling on it now. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to jump back in. How did you go from, because for Peter, college search was those paper books, the yeah, huge right. homes, right? Fisk and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, I remember all that. Yeah, so yeah, how did you yeah. go from individual paper books for each university to, I guess, online? Oh, we, or were there sure. steps along the way? Can we, can we back it up just yeah. a second oh, yeah. even more? Like, when you founded this, was it yourself or did you have, like, yeah. did, were you writing the books? Like, how did that all work? Sure, sure. So, um, so a couple things. So, um, in, I graduated with my bachelor's in 02. I got my master's in 04. Literally took mom and dad to the airport and began working essentially for myself um, the day after I graduated um, with no funding at all. I mean, literally as bootstrapped as you could possibly be <laughs> and, um, decided to really try to give it the summer and, and figure it out. Um, one of my professors at the time, um, they were kind of working out of this incubator and they had all this extra space at the back of the incubator. And they said, um, you can use some of the space back there. And they were, they were hosting some investors the son of an investor comes by and says, what are you doing? We said, well, we're just kind of these, there was two of us at the time, these recent grads are trying to figure this out. We don't really have a plan. And they said, well, do you need an intern? I said, well, we're not really a company. Um, he said, but I'd, I'd love to work for you in an unpaid internship. I'm going to be a junior at the Wharton School of Business. I said, wow, really? I said, sure, you can come on board. Like, well, we're happy to get the help. And then he asks me a couple of days later, can his buddy be also an unpaid intern from Wharton? I said, sure. Um, then all of a sudden it, it occurred to me that could we kind of create this hub and spoke model where um, college students were craving more internships, more relevant experience. So we hired student authors to basically pen the books and a student editor to edit the books. So we kind of gathered everything at the home office and we'd hire writers and editors to kind of facilitate everything initially. That That's really how we got it going um, right off the bat. Um, there were a few other classmates of mine that helped with the project. Um, none of them are still involved in the company today. Um, but from 02 to 07, that was the only revenue stream, selling physical books. And we sold 500,000 books. We sold millions of dollars of worth of books. Barnes and Noble, wow. Borders, Books a Million, college bookstores. Um, really, really tough business model. Um, you have to pay your printer in 30 days. You don't get paid for 120 days. You have negative 90-day cash flow. Um, even if they paid you, they, they can return all the books and say, we want our money back. That's called a returns allowance. If all that wasn't bad enough, we could literally see that everyone was beginning to go on the internet and um, bookstores were going to become obsolete. We could see that. I mean, literally, um, Borders Books went bankrupt, I think, around 2010. Yeah. Private equities bought Barnes & Nobles recently. We could see that book the book industry was not was not the game to bet on. I love books, but I, I knew we had to get out of books. Then 2007, what we started to do was we digitized this incredible depository of content and started charging for paid online subscription access, like a consumer reports. And we said, look, if this is this hundreds of thousands of dollar decision, people will pay for best in class content. The reality was that um, we didn't really, we were not that successful. People didn't really want to pay for content. Americans, I would say, generally prefer an advertising based model 
and have the content free than pay for the content. Today, you can see Disney Plus and Netflix and Wall Street Journal and Spotify. There's some content businesses are working, but it's not easy to get someone to spend 50 or 100 bucks a year on content. It's not easy. Um, and then finally, in 2010 is when we made the website totally free. Um, and we started building relationships to help colleges recruit students, um, work with Army ROTC, Navy ROTC, and with financial institutions. So we were kind of back to the original idea eight years after we started. So I'm, I'm happy to pause there again. Yeah, what kind of leadership challenges challenges yeah. did you have along the way? Oh, I mean, it was young, kind of evolving business model, trying to like pin down what, what's going to work oh, best. I'm curious. Very, very challenging period. Um, I mean... We had a layoff at one point where we um, got way ahead of ourselves on hiring. Um, I mean, the, I think at this point in time that we got to a point where we were like 18 full-time employees. We got down to like six employees. Um, oh, wow. We, um, it just felt like years were going by and working so hard. But if you zoomed out... Mm -hmm you could squint and feel like you weren't making any progress. It felt like I always tell people, it felt like I was running in quicksand for years. Um, it was yeah. very challenging. We were really, if we're being honest, felt like I was, I was surviving. We were not really growing. We, we, we didn't want to give up, but galvanized us was the content. We kept hearing people loved the content. We had the best content. And just kept saying, we got to stay in the game, got to keep knocking on doors, got to figure this out. And eventually we're going to figure out a business model that'll scale. It just had to buy ourselves more time. But we really, really were struggling uh, to kind of get, get, get the model to work. You know, <laughs> you know, from, I'm just curious, like as you're struggling, trying to figure out the model, you're in the process, you're like working in the business. What, how did you separate during that time to work on the business? Like, how did you gain that that distance to be able to strategically think about, ah, like maybe this is the model that we want to pursue versus where we are today? Because I I know when you're when you're struggling and you're trying to figure out how is this thing going to be viable, like that causes incredible stress. Which in, I don't know for me, incredible stress can often suppress creativity. So I'm curious how you manage that. I mean, the very early days when it was a bunch of classmates that knew each other on the business, I mean, there was no separation at all. I mean, you'd be working hard and then you'd be hanging out with the same right. folks at night. Um, and there was no kind of church and state at all. Eventually, I started to realize that I needed to kind of have a social, personal life and a professional life and kind of compartmentalize the two. And they, they just couldn't all merge 24-7. It just wasn't going to work. Um, but... It, it, it was hard. I mean, it was hard to um, find that space to figure out where we were really going to take this thing. I mean, it, it was not easy. It's like you, you're waiting for, in hindsight, you're like, how are you going to really get out of this? Where was lightning going to come from? I, I, I don't think we really had a good plan. It wasn't, it wasn't really clear how we were going to get out of this. Mm -hmm. Did, did oh, you ever want to give up? I mean, there was times where we did really, where I really did want to give up. I had, um, we had raised some money from investors. We probably up until okay. this point had raised about um, $1.2 million. I felt an extreme loyalty to them to make good on their investment. Um, I felt like at this point, um, I had put so much time. I know it's like um, 
a sunk cost to some degree, but I felt like, man, I hadn't really excelled in the corporate world. I'm all in on this. I couldn't almost afford to give up on this. I had to see this through. Yeah. And this was about 2010 in that. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you an interesting story. This is kind of like where maybe it was my dark, one of my darkest moments, but, um, I went to this wedding in Paris, France, um, in May or June um, of 2010. I had just turned 30. I was single. The company was still called College Prowler. And I go to this wedding in France. Almost no one speaks English. And I'm trying to explain what I do. I live in Pittsburgh. I'm working for this college guidebook company. I'm single. We have like, eight or 10 employees and, and these French people at this wedding, they're just looking at me with just utter disgust. I mean, they just think that I just couldn't get my life figured out. And I remember I I just stormed out of this dinner and I'm just walking all over Paris for like three hours, just so upset. And, um, a month later I went on my first date with my now wife, um, and I met her and, uh, but, but it was, it was this moment. I just, I felt embarrassed. I just felt like, what am I doing with myself? But I, I wasn't ready to give up though. I just wasn't. Yeah. So you, you know, that kind of grit to see through the hard times. What, when did things start to turn? So, um, so 2012, um, we now, so 2010, we make the website free. We get about 2% of all college-bound high school seniors to create a free account on the site. So there's about 2.5 million, roughly, high school seniors that graduate and go to college every year. And we got 2% of them. So we got about 50,000 to sign up. By 2012, we had about 25% in the whole country to create a free account on our site. And we also began developing what we call a channel partnership the company's called Chegg. Um, they used to have a, a formal kind of sales arm that was selling into admissions offices at colleges. And they became our channel partner. Essentially, hey, you'll take over um, being our sales force. We'll give you 50% of the revenue and we'll focus on product and engineering. And um, at first it was like, this is phenomenal. It's like, wow, the revenue started to go up. Um, millions of dollars of revenue coming in. Um, and it, that felt really exciting. Now I'll, I'll come to that in a moment, how that, how that finished. But, um, so then 2013 comes along and we really feel at this point that we have the recipe for the content model. We had user generated content. We had statistics, we had facts, we had rankings, we had outcomes. We felt like we had this really good model. 2013, we decided to rebrand the company from College Prowler to Niche. We own these other verticals like um, City Prowler or Job Prowler, but the name Prowler, everyone hated the name except for high school students going to college. The media hated it. Advertisers hated it. Colleges hated it. No one liked the name. And if we were going to move into these other verticals, we, we wanted one central name that could allow us to go into multiple decisions. So 2013, we secured the domain niche.com. Our favorite definition of niche out of the dictionary is a place, employment, status, or activity for which a person or thing is best fitted. I'm like, wow, this is exactly what we're trying to do. Five-letter domain name. 
and we move our second vertical is moving into the coverage of the 130,000 K through 12 schools in the United States. There was one nonprofit in California called greatschools.org that really had great traffic. They weren't covering private schools that well, and they weren't covering school districts, but they were covering individual public schools pretty well. And we said, can we bring our model of colleges to the K-12 market? And really what we were trying to do is also just expand addressable market. How can we make the market size bigger for what we were doing? Um, so yeah. 2013, um, we rebrand, we enter K-12. 2014, we, um, we launched the third vertical, which is Places to Live, which is coverage of every city, town, neighborhood, and suburb of the United States, about 80,000 yeah. locations. And we felt like there was this high correlation that when parents were researching schools for their son or daughters, that they were thinking about schools, price of a home was correlated to the quality of the school district. It was this very interconnected decision. So at this point, we had three verticals, colleges, K-12, places to live. Um, but all the backend architecture was not mobile first and it was not scalable. So if you built a search tool, you have to build it once for colleges, once for K-12, once for places to live. But we felt we had this vision at the time that we wanted to be this platform for these key life decisions. So we go out in 2014 and meet with the absolute best venture capitalists in the United States, the creme de la creme partners at the top firms. And we get rejected by absolutely every single one. <laughs> and they all basically said the same thing. They said, you're in Pittsburgh. You've now been doing this for 12 years. 50% of your revenues are tied up with this channel partner. You're not growing that fast. We cannot invest in this business. We like your data. We like your user-generated content. We think you have good traffic. This is not an investable business. And we were really frustrated. We're like, this is a really big concept. These guys invest in the silliest things and they wouldn't give us money. Um, we were really frustrated. Um, but we said, okay, we're not going to be denied. So what, what we did at the time, which is very unconventional, is we created a document called a PPM, a private placement memorandum, this giant 100-page prospectus where you write the business plan, the risk factors, and you outline where you'd be willing to accept investment at these terms. So instead of begging a venture capitalist to give you a, an offer at a term sheet, you go to an personal and credit an investor that could be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, and say, are you willing to invest in our company at these terms? And it was, and the, the, the goal of raising the capital was really to begin to build out our own sales force and vertically integrate product sales and engineering all under one roof. By outsourcing sales, we had lost the ability to close the feedback loop with the market. And it was critical that we did that. And we felt like we needed enough money in order to divorce from the channel partner and stomach those short-term losses while we were building out our own sales force. So that was really the plan that we set out to go do. And this was, you said this was around 2014, 2015. Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through what happened on the other side. Yeah. Um, absolutely <laughs> grueling. Um, so it takes about, um, about almost 18 months um, to raise $4.6 million, um, get in front of 161 individual accredited investors, 61 yeses, 100 noes, 
smallest check was 25 grand, largest check was $500,000. I mean, flying all over the country to raise this money. Um, our small, oh, mighty engineering right. team built the beginnings of the platform that came out in the fall of 16. So everything became mobile first. Yeah. You, all the architecture began to be scalable. We raised that 4.6 by hook or by crook. And then we separated on the channel partner, and then we began really building out our own sales force. Um, and that really took us through um, 2017. And then what happened, um, I would yeah. say this is a big moment. Started hiring the team, and we felt like it was going to take us about two years to replace. Um, so at this point, just for, for reader context or listener context, we were perpetually stuck around 20 employees and around 4 million, maybe 5 million in revenue. And we just could never get past that. And so we raised the 4.6. We thought we were going to shed about two, two and a half million dollars. And we needed about two years to, to shed that, th those losses. And in the first year of our own sales force, um, we get to about a million, just over a million dollars of recurring revenue by, by, hiring our own sales force. We almost replaced all of the channel partner relationship money in the first year, much faster than we thought. So we were really good at surviving, but we'd never had an opportunity to have a, to be able to invest and to grow. So at that moment in time, we went from a survival mindset to a growth mindset. We could finally make some hires. We could think a little bit further out. We could just get our head above water it was a massive change in the business um, to be able to think through that. So that that ability to invest, that you could feel that sea change happening around the end of 17, early 18, could feel that momentum hitting really fast. How did that change things for you, like in how you led the company? I'm curious. Um, it, it was, I can tell you, I've seen a lot of different things and now coming up on just past 21 years, um, growing is a lot more fun than surviving or maintaining. I can promise you that. Um, but um, so 18 came out and we, um, we had another really great year on the sales front. We were developing a lot of cool things on product and engineering. I, I was feeling pretty confident. Um, I was still a little bit inexperienced. I'd now raised this money from investors and we had board meetings and whatnot. And I started kind of missing some of our financial forecasts and I was getting eviscerated in the board. Um, very stressful. Um, I was like, Hey, we're growing fast. We're doing this. But when you can't instill confidence and clarity and ability to hit your numbers, knowing when it's going to hit, I remember, um, you know, 2018, my ability to lead the boardroom discussion was, was very nascent at that point. It was not strong. And it was, a, those were very challenging two to three hour meetings with, I would say, you know, investors that believed in me, but they were frustrated and that they, that's not fun to, to be in those boardrooms. So how did you, how'd you build those skills? Um, I started prepping a lot harder for the boardroom meetings. I mean, really working, um, me and other executives, um, our chairman, um, really took some time and helped me 
outline everything clearer. Um, so that started to all help. And then I would say by the, the fourth quarter of 18, um, I felt like I got better at forecasting, better at telling the story. And then we, we've been on a streak now where we basically hit almost every quarter for five years in a row now. And that always helps as well. Yeah. How did the market respond to you switching from college power to, to niche? There's a little bit of brand confusion, maybe for a wow. year or two. Um, but I don't think anyone was dying to keep the name College Prowler. I don't think um, there was a lot of love lost or people saying, oh my God, what, what have you done? Or you've gotten so corporate. Um, I think that was a pretty smooth switch. Um, that, that, that was not that painful. It was a little, a little bit of multiple brands for a year or two. But um, yeah, I would say by 2015, it was a non-issue and then Niche had really become the brand for us. And then I, I'd say we executed that transition incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. go ahead, Peter. No, no, no. I was going to say, Luke, because you've, you started the company and you've been there really your whole professional life, right? We've talked, we've talked to other guests who talk about mentors or people they've worked for. Uh, you work for yourself. So uh, have you had mentors? How did you figure that out? Who did you look to? Love to sure. hear about that. Um, so we had a board and, um, our chairman of the board, um, you know, really successful businessman here in Pittsburgh, um, Glenn Meekum, who um, took a company public, IPO'd. He took a real interest in me. Um, and so he's always been a professional yeah. mentor. Uh, well, I, I'd been on a lot of nonprofit, smaller nonprofit boards, Big Brothers, yeah. Big Sisters, some other local ones. And you learn some things during those, but... Um, I was I was craving to learn more. And to your point, I I, I did feel very self-taught. Um, by absolute fortune and luck, um, in 2008, I was elected as the first young alumni trustee to the board of trustees at Carnegie Mellon, and that got me exposure to 50 really incredible trustees, VPs, deans, the president's office. I saw an organization that was roughly a billion dollars in revenue, how they ran their business, their board meetings, their financial statements. I started to see and get exposure to a much bigger organization. And then around the room were these very, very successful people that I was trying to be an absolute sponge around. I just tried to get everything I could get my, you know, just, I, I put a lot into that relationship. Yeah. Um, but, but that, and then, Later on, I joined a uh, an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, where um, right. you kind of get paired up with fellow presidents and CEOs. Um, and, you know, I'm always just trying to learn because I, I have been so self-taught. Um, I've recently joined a, a for-profit, like a private, a small private company's board, um, just again, to learn how the other side runs their businesses. I'm always trying to figure out how to learn and grow. Um, but, but it's as, as a self-taught person who's never really formally worked in another organization, it, it's, it's, you don't always know what you don't know. Yeah. Look, when you, 
you know, you started off in colleges and then you built these other verticals, K-12 being one of them. Like, what were some of the challenges that you faced as you met? I mean, Brennan and I have this long history in K-12, right? So we're always interested about that. But yeah. like, what were some of the challenges that you faced there as you moved into independent schools so in I would, particular? On the college side, um, whether it was in the 90s, um, you know, probably U.S. News, maybe others, they had kind of broken down colleges sure. and, and made them understand that college rankings were coming um, they were part of life. They were a reality. And colleges had kind of, whether they liked them or not, they they learned to coexist with rankings. K-12 schools were not used to being ranked at all. They, they had not been, mm-hmm. right, you know, conditioned to accept that, like U.S. Yeah. News had, had, had maybe made colleges feel that way. Um, so when we came out with our first K-12 rankings, it was probably in 2014, maybe 15. Um, it was not yeah. met very favorably in the industry. Um, they were asking us where we were getting this data. Um, who are these guys? Um, there was a real feeling of that they were losing control. There is no perfect school. How could we be doing this? Um, it was a very tense period. Yeah. It was. Um, but, you know, one by one, we slowly started to keep telling our story stuck to our guns and and that slowly dissipated but it was very tense with um i would say with private schools initially yeah rankings are a tough thing right like uh-huh. from the independent school side uh-huh. a school that works with a student has a learning difference like how do you rank against a school that you know works with you know highly capable you know until you know academic kids right like they're just serving two different purposes but the on the flip side of it as a consumer, everything like virtually so many of the choices that I make as a consumer, Brendan, I don't know if this is true for you or Luke, but they're driven by yeah. rankings. You go to Amazon, you see how it's ranked, right? Yeah. You buy a car, you see how it's ranked. You like these big purchases that you make in life are driven in rankings, but you know, maybe it's not the same. It's not the <laughs> same because you know, it's your child versus you know, uh, you know, a consumable good. But I don't know, like, how did you kind of work through that? I mean, schools. It, that's interesting. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of commotion right now about um, U.S. news right now. Their, their brand is under fire in a major way, and um, it, you know, there's some principles that I feel that we have stood on that I feel have served us really well. That that maybe and, and I understand that rankings could perpetuate. Um, sometimes a feeling like you're biasing towards the best schools all the time or, or what, but, um, you know, we make all of our weights and methodologies completely open. You can see everything on our site, how we, our process, how we do it. We don't really change it dramatically from year to year. Um, the backbone of it all is just kind of standard open, um, government reported databases, like from the department of education and whatnot, um, and it's not self-reported data. It's not peer assessment scores. Um, and those have really served us well. But um, but on the some of it is self-reported from our users. Um, but I remember with the with the private high schools, what happened was that um, we started publishing the average SAT score of these private high schools, and these schools said, "Where where are you getting this information from?" And we had at this time probably somewhere between 40 and 50% of all high school seniors in the country, and they were 
they were self-reporting their scores on our site. And we'd sit down with schools. They'd comb through our numbers. They'd comb through their own numbers. And we'd be off by maybe 10 SAT points. It was remarkably accurate. And they, they looked at us <laughs> with a lot more credibility when we could really show them that. And they, they understood that we weren't really totally making this up out of, out of, out of nowhere. Um, but it took, it took real effort yeah. to kind of get that and to prove that out. It really did. Yeah. Transparency, right? Mm -hmm. So Luke, you're obviously five years in a row, you've met your, 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 your revenue forecasts. Like, where do you see going next with niche? Like, how do you see it growing and further becoming a important part of the process for, fa sure. for families? Sure. So, um, so, so to kind of go quickly here, so we, um, uh, we finally got the sales motion. Um, we figured out a lot of things. Um, business was really scaling healthy core business. Today we have roughly about 3000 clients. We have a, over 2000 K-12 clients, about 850 um, higher ed, another several in the graduate school space, but just over 3000 clients today. And um, so about, 50% of all college-bound high school seniors now create an account every year, but 35, 40% of colleges really um, are clients today. And, and that, the core business of kind of an enhanced premium profile, some inquiries, some prospect, and some digital advertising, um, that's all going very well. And and yet we, we, we kept thinking about this and we said, um, if, we, if a million high school seniors register every year, and if they the average spend is $25,000 a year for four years, $100,000 times a million students. We are influencing $100 billion of tuition revenue every year based upon the users registering on niche, $100 billion. We, we didn't feel we were, we were getting our fair share from a revenue perspective of the true influence that we were having. And we, we kept thinking about this, even though the business was growing really fast, you know, today we, we have 330 employees now, um, kept looking at it and 60% of colleges in the United States have an 80% acceptance rate. And so everyone talks about Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and they are phenomenal right. institutions. The truth is that only 200 colleges in the country have an acceptance rate of less than 50%. Everybody wants to go to those 200 colleges, but the vast majority of colleges accept more than, than, than apply. They do. And, and, yeah. and they're good schools. Um, there's a lot of things that are not in their favor right now. There's, there's literally just less people going to college. There's greater concern about the value. There's just so many things that are up against them right now and the processes and moving to more digital test optional. There's so much is changing right now very quickly. Um, but we went, I went to meet with two university presidents in December of 2021. And I said, we have a million high school seniors register. They supply 37 pieces of data. It's like a mini common app. We know that if they're expressing interest in your institution on niche, they're very likely to apply and ultimately enroll. The process to applying has too much friction. We're going to argue very vehemently, vehemently in an unpaid pilot with you. Can we just accept those students? Don't make them apply. And 
give them a scholarship before they've taken any action. And and the president's head spins and they're like, what are you talking about? I said, you have an 85% acceptance rate and you have a 12% yield. It's a very noisy and inefficient funnel. Your staff is overworked. The students and the parents are stressed out. No one's winning right now. It's not simple at all. And in the end, you basically accept everyone and no one comes here. Let's just simplify this. And I said, by saying that your price is $50,000 and then much later in the process, you discount it down to $25,000, you're really eliminating so many people in the process. Could you just make it upfront clear earlier that it's actually less than you they're going to actually pay? And so we got two colleges, what we call direct admissions, to go in an unpaid pilot very late in the admission cycle, one in February of 22, one in April of 22. And between the two colleges, we influenced 40 incremental enrollments. So 25 grand a year for four years times 40 kids. We found them collectively $4 million of tuition revenue they would not have gotten that they would go over the next four years. They were ecstatic. So then we said, okay, let's turn this into a paid formal beta program and we thought we were going to start this with 10 <laughs> colleges um the interest was very high um and we had 25 colleges this year running in a paid beta from the fall of 22 through the spring of 23 just wrapping up the paid beta right now um, has performed very very well i would say 22 23 maybe 24 going to renew so about a 90 percent renewal rate of the beta clients um, we are on track right now to have a hundred colleges in the program by the end of this calendar year um, from a technology and product perspective we are doing some incredible things from the platform so um, in early august um, the users will, from a platform perspective, get real-time notifications of where they have um, an accepted offer and their scholarship. They'll have a dashboard that compares the different um, offers that they've received, and then they can filter by all the colleges that offer direct admissions. Um, so we have real success on the sales front right now and real innovation happening on product and engineering. We really yeah. believe that direct admissions is the future right now. Um, and if we fast forward, hmm. we, we do believe that in time, it can move to graduate schools and to private schools as well. We do believe that. Interesting. Wow. You got, you'd love to see <laughs> something to think about there. I've read yeah, a little my, bit about my, direct. I feel like those two college yeah. presidents, my head's spinning. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Luke, I, I, want, I want to obviously be respectful of your time and you've given us, you didn't spend a lot of time telling us your story here, but we love to always ask you know, end the interview on this question. Like you've just had this chance to, you know, walk your path again and, and share your story. But if somebody came back and said, Hey, Luke, you can do this all over again. And, but you, you could either take the path that you took or you can forge a whole new one. Like, what would you do? Like, which path would you take? You know, I, I, I would, I would definitely jump on the path again. I would do it. I feel like I've, 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 I've been fortunate to have a life rich with experience they're they're an entrepreneur experience it's very very high highs and very very low lows but it's 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 you can feel it it's you're i i love i love all that i've been exposed to who i've met along the journey what we've accomplished 
and now to kind of be at the precipice yeah. of really modernizing how families apply and admit and get enrolled into colleges is to change an industry that hasn't innovated in a hundred years in that regard is, is really, really exciting. You just can't do that quickly. It just takes time. And we've now built the credibility and they, yeah. the team, they can go after that. Um, I never, ever would have thought it would have taken me 21 years to get to this point where we're now bending it right now. Timing is something that you can't control. Unfortunately, I, I do think things have now we've, we have, the timing the last couple of years has just been phenomenal for us. We've been very, very fortunate on the timing side. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that um, there's things you regret. There's things you look back on, but, but I would, I would, I would jump on the ride again for sure. And, and speaking of Lowe's, like, have you been back to Paris since 2010 or whatever year that was? Yeah. No, but yeah. you took your honeymoon there. Yeah, I, I, I have been to Paris um, once since then. Um, my wife was pregnant with our first son. Um, she was not feeling her best on that trip, um, and we haven't been back. But we, we we should get back at some point. But we just haven't. Have, I think yeah. third time's a charm. Yeah, third time's a yeah. third time's a charm. Yeah. So, Luke, this is great. Final question. Where can people learn more about you or find more about whatever you sure. want us to learn? I mean, about? obviously, our, our website's a great place, um, niche.com. Um, I'm probably of all the social channels. I'm not that active on any of them, but um, I'm probably the most active on LinkedIn. I think my handle is just slash Skurman, my last name, S-K-U-R-M-A-N. Um, my email is is Luke at, at niche.com. I'm happy to give that out as well. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate you all having me on the, on, on the podcast today. It's always fun to kind of talk shop. Yeah. Luke, thanks for coming on. And yeah, yeah right. I can't wait to see how you know, the future of what, you know, what the future brings niche and to the direct admission yeah. evolution that's happening in higher ed. That's pretty cool. Thank it's you. Pretty cool really, stuff. really appreciate it. We're, we're trucking along over here. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host The Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.